Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you, each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Hopefully you're enjoying this series that we are doing through the book of Hebrews. We are now in our sixth week in this series. We took one brief uh, break, so now this is the seventh week since the beginning. And hopefully you're beginning to see some of the major themes in the book. At the beginning, the major theme of Hebrews is that Christ is the sufficient and final revelation from the Father. Rather than understanding this to be a correction of everything that came before, the book of Hebrews presents Jesus Christ as the capstone or the pinnacle, and yet paradoxically, the foundation 
or the bedrock of everything which came before. Everything is built upon Christ and Christ himself being the final word is the crown and glory of the redemptive plan of salvation that God has been bringing to pass in the earth. In chapter one, if you remember or recall, we saw that Jesus was presented as the final word from the Father, that he was the express revelation of the Father's intention, that God spoke in many ways and in many times, but now he was finally spoken through his Son. And the reason it's important to see that that final revelation was identified as a final revelation is that we pick up that same theme in this very chapter where we see there is no other sacrifice to be made. We saw in chapters 2 and 3 a warning against neglecting salvation, a warning against apostasy, making a comparison to but not a contrast to what happened in the time of the Exodus, how the people of Israel warred against God in their hearts and they were continually straying. Even though God wished to lead them in righteousness, he swore in his wrath, they will not enter my rest because of their disobedience and unbelief. And we've kind of been seeing this theme which is really woven throughout the book of Hebrews, that faith and obedience are their friends. They they hold each other's hands, so to speak. Uh, The idea is that faith and obedience go hand in hand. They are one uh, side of the same coin, which is a righteous response to being in covenant with God. And we've seen how that covenant has been unfolded throughout the book of Hebrews, and really at this point, we now have a kind of a pinnacle or a, a turning point, a, a fulcrum, which the book of Hebrews swings on. If you've ever read the book of John, uh, you may remember that the book of John is concerned with Christ's ministry until one event, and after this event, the rest of the book is concerned with the upper room discourse, the prayer in the garden, his death, and resurrection. And that one event is the culmination of his ministry when the Gentiles, namely the Greeks, come and ask for an audience with him. That is the pinnacle on which the book of John swings, and that's really the kind of the apex, and it it makes a lot of sense when you see the narrative arc of that gospel. The exact same thing happens, although it's not a narrative arc, it's rather the theological point that the Hebrew writer was intending to to get to. He said in the prior chapters to this, I have many many things to tell you, but you're not able to understand them. He says, don't harden your hearts, but then as soon as he gets to that place where he wishes to speak on things that are mature or things that require spiritual understanding, he then says, it is hard to speak about these things because you have become dull or hard in your hearing. And so we saw that threefold warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Today, if you hear his hearts, do not harden. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And yet again, he repeats it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He says this three times. And after providing these warnings, he then says, it's hard to speak to you. I wish that I could speak more gently, but you've become hard of hearing. How do you have to speak to someone who's hard of hearing? Some of you who do uh, various nursing professions, you may have had patients, especially older patients, who are hard of hearing. You have to shout to them. You have to get through to them. And so what the Hebrew writer does is he provides sufficient and meaningful, real warnings against apostasy. 
Every time I have heard this book preached, save for one or two out of dozens of times, it is preached in a way as the warnings do not really apply to you. But we've seen that they really do apply. These warnings against apostasy are real, they are in force, and in no way does that dismiss the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or in any way does it damage right assurance but it ultimately destroys all false assurance. And that itself is a grace of God. That is an aspect of the gospel, that our assurance, how we understand to be held rightly in, in a covenantal relationship by our union with Christ, which is accomplished by God himself through the, the, gift, the gifting or the gracious giving of uh, faith, that that aspect is our only understanding, our only justification for assurance. Any assurance which is built on anything other than Jesus Christ is ultimately out of sync with the gospel. And so we've seen how if we look to our performance day by day, if we look to that as the basis of the foundation of our assurance, then we have no real assurance and we will be like the house that is built on sand, right? Christ said there were two ways to build. There's one way to build on a foundation and the other way to build is on anything other than Christ himself. And if you're building that way, it is right for God to knock down the house. Would that he would restore it and build it up rightly. And so in chapter six, we've looked at these warnings and now what the Hebrew writer is doing is he's addressing those in this community who may have initially tasted some of the aspects of God's grace, but do not really understand their need and are deluding themselves, thinking that they believe or presuming or to create an appearance of belief, but really there is no inward reality. If your, if your heart or conscience says to yourself, this might be me, then that is probably a good voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. The devil never allows you to doubt false assurance. That is his, he loves to keep false assurance at play. And the Holy Spirit is a convictor of sin. In fact, it's often the opposite of what we presume to be going on. If we doubt our assurance and we look at our past week and we're focusing on externals, but rather instead of the inward reality, as Paul says, the Holy Spirit's voice and we ourselves in our conscious know, uh, that, that doubt is a good doubt. If it, is doubt, if it is based on anything other than Christ, it is, it is very seldom the case that those people who are at least a little bit concerned about their assurance have any real need to. Ultimately, if you are able to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, that means the hardening of, of your heart is not complete. That is a good sign. Some people think it's a bad sign. Oh, I'm, I'm wondering about my assurance. Do I really know? Everything in the book of Hebrews says it is right and good to consider and test and to, to make sure that your assurance is founded on Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews ultimately is about, avoiding false Christs and therefore avoiding false assurances and understanding, making sure that we are not operating in delusion. And so this this main theme, the glory of Christ in his mediatorial office, that is the glory of Christ as priest and sacrifice himself, is paired with the obedience of faith. That theme is really the second major theme in the book of Hebrews. And it's this point, it's this, this turning point in the book where he says, I would move on to things that concern maturity, and we will if God allows us to. It's really after this point that we then begin to see 
still some aspects of Christ and his glory, but mainly, especially when we get to, for example, chapter 11, an interaction with faith-filled obedience or the obedience of faith. And understanding that, we are, sought, we are told to emulate that, as we're going to see in today's reading. So here we see a need for maturity, the absolute need to move on from the gospel, and we're going to examine what it means to move on or to go forth from, not forsaking but progressing upon. We're going to look at, again, the severity of apostasy, that is the warning which is given here for those who are near the hardness of heart but still have uh, some need to receive a warning as the warning is present in the chapter. The understanding of assurance and good works that is paradoxically based upon uh, the evidences, the leaves of the tree, but not considered as the root of the tree. Then we're going to look at God's promise to Abraham as a continuation of thought of how is that assurance based, or what is that assurance based on, namely Christ, but also the evidences of of the grace of God, that is the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, we're going to look at the grace of God in the gospel. The gospel itself is a gracious thing, but God is gracious even within the context of the gospel. And we're going to look at what it is that God has done in order to give us assurance and faith. This is an aspect of God that the Hebrew writer is revealing that I think is absolutely marvelous. That in the proclamation of the gospel, God not only gives you an insight into his counsel, but he himself swears or binds himself. He limits himself. When we talk about divine uh, illimitability, that is the, the understanding that God is not constrained by anything that he has made. God is not beholden to anything that he's made. He, know, he neither is derived from, but rather is his own self-sustaining, self-existent purpose. But he places a limitation upon himself through the swearing by an oath to bring it to pass for Abraham. And then the Hebrew writer connects it to the gospel. That is, for all those who were to inherit salvation, he makes an oath so that they would be absolutely sure. If you've sat under uh, this sort of preaching before, you may remember that one of the major paradigms of Scripture is that every fact must be established by two or three witnesses. In fact, if I had one thing to give you, I would just encourage you to use that paradigm as you're reading the Bible to look at God's pattern of establishing the surety of his covenant. That here, it shows up again that by two unchangeable things, God would absolutely convince you that his gospel is true and that he will bring it to pass. Those twofold aspects are really where we see at the end here this idea of our hope being that hope which goes into the veil or beyond the curtain. And so I would encourage you as we're examining these things to understand this within the paradigm of the chapters that have come before and to see how it connects and, and even resonates with the rest of the New Testament. So the Hebrew writer has sufficiently resolved in the prior chapters all of the objections that the Judaizers had, that Christ was not really from God, that he was just another manifestation of a revelation. He was just like another Moses or another Elijah, but he himself is the final revelation, the final word. There will be no modification of his words, 
and there will be no ending of the applicability of those words. So the Judaizers at this time were giving evidence or trying to pervert the church into moving on from Christ in the wrong way. That is, they would understand that Christ is good for the Gentiles, but they need something else. They need to take on circumcision. They need to take on the strict observance of those portions of the law which were merely symbolic and have been set aside. After answering these objections, the Hebrew writer turns to his desire to bring maturity. We saw last week how pastors who never bring a rebuke are actually not pastors at all, but that fathers and apostolic ministers have a desire to call up the saints to maturity. And this was really his original intention in writing the letter. The first five chapters are him answering concerns that he has, fatherly concerns. These are like children who are playing with boiling water on the stove. These are children who are near the street and are darting into it. This is a pastoral letter written to answer objections, to call those people back to faith, and to warn them against the apostasy that comes with drifting away from Christ. He's answered those objections, and so he says, we have need to press on to maturity. In verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. This is my great fear that the church has so perverted the gospel or truncated the gospel to only justification of faith, the forgiveness of sins, the necessity of baptism, and some aspects of sanctification and learning how to walk by the Spirit, that we never move on to maturity. And the Hebrew writer says that this is right and sufficient. We saw last week and the week prior that if you are a child in, in the faith, that it's right to be a child in the faith. And that the absurdity is being a child in the faith and yet pretending that you're mature. Babies need to drink milk and men or young men, young women, people who are being raised up to, to become adults, those need to begin to learn how to eat meat. And so he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine, not relaying a foundation. So much of our walk with Christ has been again, kind of the cultural context in the church has created this understanding of, oh, we need to just re-examine the foundation all the time. But if you are coming to maturity, you do not need to relay the foundation. You need to begin to build upon it. Now, if the foundation has never been laid, if there's cracks in the concrete, if you accidentally dumped a bunch of water on the concrete as it was trying to set, and there's problems with the sublayers, then yes, break up and build the foundation. But once the foundation has been established, we need to start building. Verse 2, he describes again the foundation, repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instructions about washings or baptism, the laying on of hands, that's ordination, praying for the sick, um, and also asking God to intervene. Uh, this also takes place in marriage, but that's another um, aspect completely. Finally, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. These are the things which really are the seed or the kernel of the gospel. And these are right and good things. In no way is he saying we need to move on and forget, right? He's saying we need to graduate into the next aspect. It's a necessary and right consequence of pastoral and apostolic authority that he would say you need to grow up. You need to call, you need to be called up higher to understand what God is doing, not only with 
his unfolding redemptive plan, but how you have been called to be a part of it. He continues the theme from the prior chapters, saying that he desires that they would become mature. And this is really his point, that graduating from kindergarten, when you establish that you are ready to graduate from kindergarten, middle school, high school, even college, you do not begin to learn things in in first grade that contradict what you learned in kindergarten. Does anyone remember their kindergarten class? What did you learn there? You learned the alphabet. Hopefully you learned phonics. If you were in a great school, you probably even started to say some phonetical phrases or, or syllables. You learned numbers. You probably saw things like coins or dollar bills. You learned very simple things that were then built upon in first grade. You were not deceived. It's not like the if, if you, you have any familiarity with some of the secret religions or the cults, one of the things that they operate by, the principles that they operate, is every level you have to unlearn what you've learned before because it's hidden. And until they can trust you, they don't really tell you what they believe. This is why... Uh, this is why those dark arts, those, those cults are so evil is because they're built on a web of lies. But here, we are understanding that the gospel's foundation is not broken up, but it's built upon. And so graduating to a more complete knowledge and a deeper integration of your mind to the doctrine of God is not the abandoning of the gospel. It is not the abandoning of the gospel to go deep into the word of God and to read it and to understand what it means. And in this very book itself, he defines spiritual maturity as a holistic engagement with the eternal counsel of God. That is to say, it is a mind interacting with the scriptures, considering how the church has historically interpreted them to see the glory of Christ in every chapter, every page, and to understand the covenantal arc throughout history to understand where God is going. It's a deep engagement with the Old Testament to see the shadows and types that spoke of Christ. And if that has been going on, it should necessarily lead us somewhere. If if you've spent any time in a statistics class or a financial class, there, there are whole disciplines about understanding trend lines. Perhaps in a geometry class, you've seen patterns, moving averages, things like this, to understand where are things going. That's what he's calling these Hebrew Christians to do. He's calling them to understand God's covenant history and to look forward in the future, where is this going? Again, this is a deep concern that I have. So much of the church is focused even now on the language of exile. If you read anything from Christianity Today or Charisma Mag, uh, Relevant Magazine, these, these articles which are being produced by the majority of the evangelical word, world are focused on Christianity having a diminished aspect or a diminished influence in the future. And they're completely out of step with the narrative arc of where history is going. Christ is drawing the nations to himself. He will receive their riches and their worship. And yet we are so focused on ourselves that we think that the dying of America, as she turns away from God, that that is the end of the world. And this actually becomes, I think it's the spirit behind the pessimillennial approach that literally the end of the world is coming because it's the end of their world. But we know that Christ is reigning on the throne. And so for that reason alone, we need to move on to maturity. The reason the writer does not wish to lay a foundation again is that it's not possible. 
it is not possible to lay a foundation if you think the foundation is fine. This is the spiritual state that he's interacting with. He says, for it is impossible, verse four, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now here he describes things that are accurately uh, representing someone who's near the things of God, but is not a true and full and right participant in the things of God. Note, he does not say it is impossible to restore those who have the operation of the Holy Spirit, but who have shared in the Holy Spirit or tasted. This language is that of tangential relationship to God. Those who are near the things of God, but are not participating in them as true participants. Verse five, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. There's a parenthetical phrase. It's actually kind of hard to see, but he says, for it is impossible. And then he describes a number of things about those who he's, he's uh, talking about. And then it says to restore them to repentance since they are crucifying once again. So what he's talking about is those who are near the things of God, but have no true fellowship with them, no actual um, interaction with God in truth, but rather are pretenders. Those who reject the gospel, but seemingly approve of it on their externals. The reason it's impossible is because the hardening of their heart is so sure that they see no need to re-interact with God. The writer has in mind those who, who have been near God, especially participants in churches. Especially participants in churches who never have any inward reality, but presume to be near God or close to God or right with God because they attend church, they maybe do one nice thing a week. Many of you know that I, uh, I love the, the show The Office, and there's this one time where this character does something and it gets him in a lot of trouble, and he, the reason he got in trouble is he was trying to prank someone else. And after this comes to light, in the little interview on the camera, he says, I'm not going to prank anymore. I'm going to just be good. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to go to church, try to do one nice thing per week. And this is really the, the mindset, right? This is the mindset of so, so many of us who have held God at a distance, but externally we have everything going on rightly. We Perhaps you, you know, are, are mad with our wife or our husband or our children. Uh, everything is going to hell, literally. There, the operation of the devil is present in our, our personal life or in our family. But as soon as we get to church, how you doing, brother? It's been good. Oh, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? you we put on a facade. And this is an absolute danger. If this is going on with you, if, if you find yourself into this circumstance, if, if everything that goes on inside you is quietly hidden and only known to you and never revealed to another, if you never confess your sins to one another, if you never open up and walk in the light and, but are instead in secret walking in darkness, then you have no participation with light. Light has no fellowship with darkness. And so here the reason he says it's impossible to restore them is because they don't see the need to be restored. They don't have any understanding of the fact that inwardly they are dead, but externally they have a name that they're alive. The writer has these people in mind, and the reason is manifold, as we've said. First, they have no desire for it, since they've fallen away from the things of God. Those blessings which were common to them in either the life of the church or a gospel community, those things which were a blessing have been removed because they've fallen from God. And second, by their apostasy, they proved that they were never truly recipients of the grace of God, but rather we're just around the things of God.
The reason that we know this is true is because the Hebrew writer proves that they are apostate by the use of a parable. And this use of this parable has an end. I want you to look at the end of this parable. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop is useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Remember the book of Deuteronomy and the book of the Exodus, how... Uh, God is describing the land as a garden which he is making and how they weren't allowed to cut down any of the trees which bore fruit. The reason being God is establishing Israel so that he would have a place to be in the earth, that he would be with his people in a garden sanctuary, much like the Garden of Eden, but reestablished in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land with vineyards and orchards and wine presses and Uh, fields. This was God's doing. And we saw how the temple was actually created in such a way that everything in the temple was a reminder of the fertility of the land. He says, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And it is its end or the end goal is for it to be burned. He proves that those who fall away from God are absolutely no longer participants in the grace of God. And ultimately, the destiny is for them to incur wrath and judgment. The writer then consoles his hearers. If you've spent any time reading the book of Hebrews, especially if you're a very young believer and you're still warring with, should I repent? Should I end these sins? Should I kill them? Or, you know, can I tolerate them? The, the common use of these warnings by Satan himself is to cause you to despair so as to lose hope. And the writer, rightfully so, consoles his readers, saying that this is not the case for the majority of them. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I absolutely love this verse, because what he's doing is he's saying, don't uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. The the whole of the community that he's writing to, for the most part, is right with God, and and they have the signs and evidences of assurance. And so we see in the New Testament multiple justifications for assurance. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. He cries out, Abba, from among us. Paul also says, our conscience itself, uh, it it knows there's there's a knowledge which God gives to us inwardly. And then finally here, he actually calls them to pay attention to the evidence of the grace of God operating within their community. Look at this closely. He says, for, that is, he's connecting it to, for, the reason why they're convinced that there are better things for these is for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Is this works-based approach to, to the gospel? Absolutely not. This is not a works-based approach to the gospel, but it is a evidence-based approach justification for their assurance. It's totally different. These people have inward reality with God. And he is saying, the Hebrew writer is saying, God will not overlook those things which have been done in faith. We understand throughout the scripture that this accords with the narratives or the stories, the historical stories, the the right, true things that were happened and recorded for us. What happened to David? David was given a covenant by God because David was one who sought God. And he was given a covenant because God wished to magnify David's obedience. The same thing happens in the New Testament with Cornelius. 
Cornelius is told your prayers and supplications and offerings have arisen before God as a remembrance. That is to say that what Cornelius had done in faith, God actually saw as evidence of the faith. And so we begin to see the Hebrew writer's interaction with faith and obedience going hand in hand. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. In pointing to their obedient response to the call of the gospel, the writer shows that there is a harmony between works and faith. We commonly, especially those who are Protestants or Reformed people, whether you identify with that label or not, we commonly seek to pit works and faith against each other. But the Bible actually says that they are married together. And the writer himself does this. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. That is, earnestness is convinced of an outcome, right? This is convinced of an outcome. To have the full assurance of hope until the end, verse 12, really this is where it comes together, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How does he say that those who have gone before us, and in this way, if you remember Hebrews chapter 11, he has in mind all the faithful, the patriarchs, the prophets of old, the priests, the kings, the judges, anyone in Israel who was not named in the Bible but had a true authentic faith. He says, all of these people are those who have come before. He says, but you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, the faith that God gives to you, the confidence with faith, confide with faith, uh, the confidence that God gives to a person concerning God's promises is the grounding for their obedience. When someone like Abraham, for example, is considering whether or not to sacrifice Isaac, as the Hebrew writer will show us in future chapters, the reason he's able to, to do it is he believes God's promises are true. And that belief fuels the obedience. They are married together. They are not unlinked. There's actually a causal link. The obedience of faith is caused by the faith itself. And that faith is a gift. And so we see a continuity of the writer's invocation of the paradox of faith in the prior chapters. If you remember in Hebrews 4, it says, strive to enter the rest. This is a paradox. It doesn't make sense to our natural mind. If I want to rest... I just begin to rest. But here he says, to enter the rest of God, you must strive. And so the obedience of faith is so important to understand. He calls these Christians to imitate the faith of those who have come before and therefore examines many examples throughout the letter. This is really the, the, the fulcrum of the book. And from here, he's going to interact with story after story of those who had faith-filled obedience. In examining the faith of Abraham here, he shows that it was not Abraham's resolve, nor plan, nor obedience, but rather the gift and promise of God. Verse 13, for God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God made a promise to Abraham. He revealed graciously his divine counsel, which was to make covenant with Abraham and through Abraham to bless the entire world. And then after making confidence or, or making known his counsel to Abraham, he then gives Abraham a promise saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And when he says surely, he says it's a true thing. I will bring it to pass. Verse 15, thus 
or in connection to God's promise, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You, you need to begin to see the connecting language. It's kind of like pipes that join up and ideas flow from one area to the next. He says, because God didn't have anything greater than himself to swear by, he swore by himself, provided an oath, and therefore, or and thus, Abraham obtained the promise. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. This is exactly what we do in every covenant symbol or every covenant ceremony. Think of a wedding. There are wedding pledges. There's oftentimes a vow that's given. Sometimes people write their own vows. I'm not a big fan of that because you're not that creative. Uh, And most of the time, every vow that I've heard has a little bit of selfishness in it. It doesn't matter if you've written your own vows. Almost all vows include the pledge to be faithful, to be uh, fidelity. You know, fidelity means faithful, fide. Um, You're learning a little Latin today. Uh, See my wife if you want to learn more Latin. Uh, the, The call to steadfast faithfulness in the marriage is made and then there is a swearing of, the, of that promise. There's a promise to be faithful, and then there's a swearing and confirmation of that promise. The causal link between Abraham's great obedience, which was indeed great and amazing when you consider what's going on, the great obedience that he has is understanding God's promise to bring about his destiny. That is, he hears God say, surely I will make you a great nation, I will bless you through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He hears that promise, and that is the justification. That's the grounding for it. Abraham reasons thus. He says, because God has promised and God cannot lie, I can trust in him and sacrifice my son. Notice, Abraham and his wife Sarah had never had a child. They have one through Hagar, who is known as Ishmael. God says, Ishmael will not be the one through whom the promise will come. God then tells Abraham after they have Isaac to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned that God would raise him from the dead. That is the obedience of faith. It is not questioning God's word, even in the light of circumstances. It is a justification. It is a basis for intellectual activity that reasons in a way that honors God instead of reasoning according to the systems of men. God's call to make Abraham a great nation was not an invitation, but rather a declaration of what he was going to do. That's what the gospel is. So much of our gospel preaching is try Jesus, consider Jesus, examine Jesus, try him out for a few weeks, and if he's not bad, you can get a return. This is honestly most of the appeal of the great evangelists of the last century have presented Christ as an optional package instead of the apostolic teaching in the book of Acts, which is God has commanded that all people everywhere repent. That Jesus is king and all the other kings are fake kings who ultimately only reign because of his toleration and that Christ is due all Fidelity. Christ is due all fealty. Christ is due all honor and praise and glory and obedience and taxes. Uh oh. From this example, the writer connects God's promise to Abraham to the promise in the gospel itself. This is really where we see the grace of God inside the gospel. The gospel itself is gracious, but even in the delivery of the gospel, how the gospel comes to you, God has been 
gloriously gracious. And why do I say glorious? Because no other God, no God imaginable in our own minds, no God of our invention could be this kind in how he brings about the obedience of faith. Verse 17, he's making a connection using the word so. He says, in light of what God did with Abraham, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me and everyone else who is or will be saved, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That is, if you saw, John did a great job while reading. John Gray did a great job while reading. He's, he did one and then two. And it was a, I didn't coach him on that. He did a great exa- uh, job doing that, showing that there was an unchangeable character of God's purpose. That is, the gospel is the revelation of the eternal counsels between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God would create a world in which he would glorify himself through redeeming some and judging others, showing the ultimate sinfulness of sin and the great mercy that he himself has to those who do not deserve it. Nevertheless, even though he's declared his counsel, he makes an oath by himself to those who would inherit salvation. He promises in the context of his promise. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The context of fleeing for refuge is that the writer is examining Jesus as the substance for what was known as the cities of refuge in the book of uh, Leviticus. That is, if anyone committed an iniquity that was punishable by death, by accident, they could flee to the cities of refuge. And if they made it to the city of refuge, they were not allowed to be killed. That is, if you accidentally killed someone, let's say it's manslaughter and not murder, if you made it to the city of refuge, you would not be judged. Now, those who committed murder and it was proved could not just hide in the city of refuge. Nevertheless, our iniquity is much greater than murder. Our iniquity is whole, full-sale, high-handed rebellion against God. And even though that's taken place, Christ is considered in this verse as a place of refuge, greater than the cities of refuge in the Old Testament, which were merely a foreshadowing of the substance to be revealed. Nevertheless, he says that in this context of us coming to Christ for refuge, we who flee for wrath, hiding in Christ, have confidence. We have assurance, encouragement to hold fast. When the writer says these two things, he applies them to God's counsel and oath. God does not merely save individuals in his redemption, but he declares it to them. He declares it to them so that they might have a true, right, gospel-powered faith, obedience, and love to him, even while they still live. If God wished to, he could merely save people without their knowledge. But by an act of his grace, he allows them to not only encounter the means of, the, of grace, which is namely the preaching of the gospel, the repentance of faith, and then from there, he gives them a promise. This to me is absolutely gracious because he shows them the convincing truth of it in a way that is not understood by the natural man, but a way that he come, causes to come to pass through the operation of his spirit. He enables Lazarus to come forth. Lazarus is dead. Christ says, come forth. God causes Lazarus to come alive, and then Lazarus obeys. This is a picture of the gospel, that Christ himself says to you, come forth. And that obedience of faith, which is possible because the Holy Spirit has recreated the inner man, says, yes, amen, I will. 
and then you come forth. The condescension of God in declaring the gospel is further glorified by his promise to bring it about himself. You are not without aid in the, in the Christian walk. You have been given the, the promise of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit. These two witnesses, namely the internal and unchangeable counsel of God and his oath to perform it, are the bedrock foundation upon which you can know that you can trust God. This is so important in an age of extremely broken family relationships because as people, as humans, we think about God in relation to the way that we think about our parents, we think about our friends, we think about other humans. Now that's not necessarily right, but that's where we often begin. And so in God's sovereign wisdom, he understands that sin will pervert all those things in which you can trust. And that trust will be broken in such a way as it will hamper, or it will uh, harm uh, or damage that person's ability to trust anything. And yet God himself knows that he is able to come and declare the gospel to those who are to inherit salvation in such a way as to get through to them in a way that is loving and fatherly and tenderly. Verse 19, we have, so this is the capstone on the engagement that he's had with Abraham and with the nature of the gospel. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. If you remember the first, sorry, the second song we sang this morning in the second verse, through every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. That, that line there is from this verse right here. He says, we have a steadfast anchor which goes in, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking about the tabernacle and temple in which the holy place was separated from, sorry, the holy of holies was separated from the holy place, which itself was separated from the inner court, and that was separated from the outer court. He says that Christ himself is the anchor which goes in past the veil, and it stays there. And the reason it stays there is because Christ himself in his mediatorial office is there presently now. This is what he says in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. What is his whole point? His whole point is that year after year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. He would make an atonement. And that atonement itself was a reminder of sins. That is, every time he goes into the Holy of Holies, he offers up a sacrifice and therefore reminds the people of their need for atonement. But now in Christ, Christ has, by the Spirit of God, entered into the heavenly tabernacle, offered himself as a sacrifice, and then stands there, not coming back out. And he says in verse 20 that he's gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And that meaning of forerunner is one who advances forth and establishes protection or a realm in which others can follow behind. Christ is seen here as our advance guard going before us to encounter the enemy, completely routing and destroying them, and then staying and occupying the territory that he's won. The reason why is that you and I are going to where he is. He goes as a forerunner encountering everything on earth that we would have encountered the judgment from God, but he himself was due a righteousness. And that was why he was raised from the dead. And in him being raised from the dead, he ascends and stands at the right hand of God in the heavenly tabernacle. And so we understand that he is a high priest who never leaves 
the side of God. And because he is there, we will also meet him there. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would convince us of this, that you would allow us to throw away and, and completely reject all other assurances, even, Lord, looking at our own pattern, but that we would understand that you are bringing about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We pray that you would allow us to glory in Christ, that we would become mature, that you would give us a hunger for the Word of God, that we would be able to see Christ fulfilling every shadow and type in the Old Covenant Scriptures that we would see the glory and excellency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that that would captivate us, that we would be undone by it, that as your word is called a sword, that it would fillet open our hearts, that you would reveal those things which are not submitted to you, that we would ultimately kill them by your grace, that we would submit every area to you, Lord Jesus, and that you would cause us to be so filled with love, joy, wonder, and that we would glory in the gospel and that would change our entire life. That we would be able to be commissioned to share the light that you've given us with others. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.